freedom ring. Let freedom ring. Let freedom ring. Let freedom ring. This is Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. Welcome back to Under the Tree. I'm Bill Ayers, and I'm here with Light Ali, gathered in the spirit and the memory of Malik Alim for our seminar on freedom. That was the singer, songwriter, and freedom fighter Tom Morello with his signature anthem, Let Freedom Ring. Tommy's generosity is an inspiration. He shows up whenever people are coming together under the banner of freedom in search of peace and justice. Tom has a photo book out called Whatever It Takes that tracks his lifelong journey as an artist, an organizer, and an activist. The book is both illuminating and rousing, and I urge you to pick it up. TomMorelloBook.com. One word. TomMorelloBook.com. We're transmitting, as always, on the freedom frequency, calling on you to join us as we look uneasily at the world we've inherited and struggle toward a world that could be or should be, but is not yet. And we note that while we typically broadcast from the traditional lands of the Potawatomi, the Ojibwe, and the Odawa, today we're traveling lightly on the unceded lands of the Hoopa, the Karuk, and the Yurok peoples. We acknowledge them, thank them, and honor the history of stolen land and resources, a history of mass American genocide. And we pledge to keep our eyes and our hearts open in our shared struggle for peace and repair, justice and joy, balance and love. So let's keep asking, what is freedom? How do we get free? What are the freedom dreams that encourage us and drive us forward? These good questions animate our every conversation and our ongoing reflection. As most of you know, the name of the podcast, Under the Tree, draws inspiration and wisdom from the freedom schools created during the civil rights uprisings and the freedom struggles of the 50s and 60s. Those fugitive spaces were sites where people gathered to name their political moment, to think freely about a world that could be or should be, but is not yet and to organize an insurgency. The work continues. Our first regular feature is a moment of Zen, the quiet contemplation of a poem. And today's poem is Hope is the Thing with Feathers by Emily Dickinson. Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. And sweetest in the gale is heard and sore must be the storm that could abash the little bird that kept so many warm. I've heard it in the chillest land and on the strangest sea, yet never in extremity it asked a crumb of me. Our second regular feature is a free write, a time to release our imaginations and react extemporaneously, enabling surprising new winds to gather strength, and then to release our imaginations and allow those unexpected and astonishing winds to go wild. Here you can pause the podcast for just a few moments. Again, I'll remind you that you can pause the podcast for as long as you want to. It's not going anywhere, which you surely already know. So pause here if you like and write wildly. No need for edits or revisions in response to this prompt. What was the first or most enduring lesson you learned at home as a child? Start writing, and we'll be right here when you return. Email us at underthetreepod at gmail.com to share your response to the writing prompt, or if you just want to introduce yourself and build community. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, Under the Tree Podcast, for clips and interviews. And follow us on Instagram at underthetreepodcast. 
All right, it's time for our segment, Artists, Activists, Authors, and Academics After Hours, which we pronounce as a sigh. Ah. And today we have Zaid Dorn, creator and host of a new podcast called Mother Country Radicals, which is leaping in popularity and racing around the country. So we've got Zaid Dorn here. Zay Dorn is also a professor of dramatic writing and screenwriting at the Northwestern University in Chicago. He also, notably, is my son. And, notably, my father. <laughs> Welcome, Zay. Thank you. Thank you guys for having me. It's great for you to be here and take the time. Um, I mentioned Mother Country Radicals. It is taken off in popularity. I'd like to ask you a little to explain to our audience a little bit what it is. Yeah, so Mother Country Radicals is a limited series. It's 10 episodes long. It's kind of a narrative, partly a personal memoir, a memoir of our family. I've talked to Bill and Bernadine, my parents, talked to a bunch of their friends in the Weather Underground and the Black Panther Party, the Black Liberation Army. And so the podcast is really kind of my going back and trying to understand my family's history and also in doing so trying to understand the revolutionary undergrounds of the 1970s and kind of what they can teach us about today. What did you learn? <laughs> well, there were a bunch of things. I mean, I got it was a it was a kind of a good chance even though I've lived with you guys my whole life. It was a chance to ask a bunch of the questions that I hadn't really sat down and asked. I learned a lot about the kind of relationship between black and white radicals back in the day and how that might inform the way we think about allyship and comradeship today. I learned a lot about my own childhood, where we were, what you guys were doing, the context I came out of, um, my own kind of friendships with other weather kids and panther cubs, uh, including Ty Jones and Chase Boudin and Kakuya Shakur. So it's kind of about the generation of radicals in the 70s, and then my generation growing up um, in that kind of legacy. Let me ask you also, why now? Why did you decide to write and produce this podcast at this moment? Well, I really started working on it during the Trump era. I was thinking about, you know, how people resist an authoritarian government, how they resist a sort of push towards law and order. And I thought, you know, looking at your history and the history of activism in the 60s and 70s would be a good place to start thinking about where activists should go now. And actually, one of the most interesting parts about it was that as I was working on it, as I was talking to you and then talking to other folks, people like Jamal Joseph, who's a New York Black Panther and member of the Black Liberation Army, I kept hearing over and over again how many people had been radicalized by police violence against black people, uh, the killing of Fred Hampton in Chicago, the killing of Clifford Glover, this 10-year-old boy in Queens. And as I was doing those interviews, of course, George Floyd was murdered and protests erupted on the streets. So it started to feel like a very good time to have this history back out in the public consciousness. So there's a political motive and a personal motive. Indeed. Tell a little bit more about Jamal Joseph. He was a friend and a comrade back in the day, but I was really interested to hear him today talk about his history. Yeah, Jamal was one of the most interesting things about about doing this series for me. I mean, I divided the podcast into 10 episodes, and each episode, in a way, follows a person, an individual, even as it tries to tell this overall history. So the first episode is about my mom, about Bernadine. Second episode is about you, about Bill. And then the third episode is about Jamal Joseph, because I started to realize as I was telling this history that you can't tell the history of the Weather Underground or the white activists of the time without understanding the leadership role of the Black Panthers and the Black Liberation Army. And 
Jamal Joseph was a kid. He was 15 when he was radicalized and, you know, by the killing of Martin Luther King, the killing of Fred Hampton, joined the Panthers. 16 when he was arrested as part of the Panther 21 and sent to Rikers Island. And so he's just a fascinating person in that he was a very young man, really a, a child when when he joined the movement and he grew up in the underground and as a activist fighting for black liberation. He's also a brilliant storyteller, brilliant writer, funny guy. And, and so he taught me a lot about kind of what, what these movements looked like and sounded like at the time. Ironically, he has a position similar to yours at Columbia University. Yeah, yeah. Right? he's a playwright and screenwriter like me and teaches playwriting and screenwriting like me, but at Columbia instead of Northwestern. So Lighty, what did you learn listening to the podcast? Did you discover things you didn't know? Um, you know, I've known all my life a certain version of the story. I I have gotten things from classmates about it, both positive and negative. My friends <laughs> say that they want to be you guys when they grow up. My enemies do not. Um, <laughs> enemies? I don't... Well, not enemies, just my... Um, <laughs> People I don't agree with. Um, but listening to the podcast was really interesting for me because not only was it narrated by my father, but it was about my grandparents and about how they were when they were young. And I, I look at you guys differently now. When I look at you and Bibi or Bernadine, I, um, I'm like, wow, they were once the people I was hearing about on the podcast and they still are. It's funny, you when we were driving the other day, and you were behind the wheel, and you were asking me to play your playlist, and it came to Bob Dylan. I was so surprised to find Bob Dylan on your playlist. Why? Um, actually, it was on my. It was Subterranean Homesick Blues, right? It was on my playlist because I had listened to the podcast. My my um, it's the podcast sampled the line. It don't take a weatherman to know which way the wind blows, and I really liked it. I thought it was cool, and I liked the beat and his voice. So. I put it on my playlist, and it was actually just coincidence that it played while you were with me. You know, one of the funny things, uh, when I was listening to the podcast, one of the surprises for me was that your dad eavesdropped on you and me, and he catches us at the table talking about John Brown. Do you remember that? I do remember it. Do you remember what we were arguing about? Yeah. Uh, it, it was a while ago, and I th wish it had been a little later in my life because I feel like my take on it wasn't as sophisticated as it could have been and my argument was not as polished as it is now. You were 13 instead of 14 like you are now. Yeah, and I, I wish I were a little older also because I'm more mature now also. Come on, there is a maturity gap between 14 and 13 and I've thought about it a lot more now and I think that I think at one point I say I don't like it, which mm. is never a good thing to say during a debate. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you remember what you're talking about when you say you don't like it? Um, I'm pr I'm I'm sh I'm pretty sure we're we're just talking about um, John Brown and talking about how I think that it's it's insane to throw your kids under the bus for a political cause that you believe in. And Bill was arguing that if you have passionate beliefs, you have to be willing to do that at some point. Go ahead points. and throw your kids under the bus. I don't know that I said that. But. <laughs> okay. I'll, I mean, I think that my, my belief about it was heavily influenced by the fact that I am still someone's daughter who relies on them for almost everything yeah and the thought of my mom and dad becoming so like engrossed in their political and activist lives is really scary to me because 
when you're young, you automatically believe that the people you love love you so unconditionally that they'll never care about something as much as they care about you. So learning about John Brown in seventh grade humanities was like a slap in the face because it was like this guy went against everything that we children believe in and he sacrificed his family, something that he's supposed to care about more than everything, for something that he apparently cared about more. Well, you know, but I remember you saying in that argument, you said something like, it's not rational. And I said something like, but slavery's not rational. And he was throwing himself against slavery. So what do you think of that? Did I say it's not rational? I think you did. Maybe I'm wrong. Okay. Um... Well, the way we had learned about it in Humanities was that we had we had looked at the iconic painting of him. I think in one hand he has a Bible, and the other he has a gun. Um, and our Humanities teacher had said to us, does anyone know how he looks? And a girl in my class raised her hand, and she said, uh, he looks crazy. And he was like, yeah, crazy, right? He's... You know, his eyes are, like, rolling around, he's, like, screaming, he's running, he's not in a completely sane state of mind. So I think when I heard that, I was like, that must be why he made this choice that I can't imagine anyone I know making. Mm -hmm. But I don't think it's irrational anymore. I don't think that, I don't think that John Brown was insane Um, I just think his priorities are things that repel me and my generation so much that I wasn't able to accept the fact that he made that decision. Mm -hmm. But, you know, Zaid talks about in the podcast, the fact that you can point to a lot of parents who made decisions. And in a way, on the one hand, you are the top priority and you want to live for your children. But on the other hand, you're not just living for your children. You're going to work. You're involved in other things, right? And you think about Martin Luther King had kids. Nelson Mandela had kids, right? Malcolm X had kids. I'm not making a comparison. I'm just saying, you know, they also had to balance loving their children, not wanting to, you know, to die, but at the same time, wanting to be involved in making the world a better place for their children. I yeah, I mean you I I I'm I know that not only he made that decision, but in every case I have heard of that decision being made in the way that he made it, I I think it's not fair. Mm-hmm. I think that you shouldn't become a parent if you know that your priorities are that way because your kid deserves to live too. I think you make a good point. I also think it's complicated. Like when you ask the question, you know, you look at the world, the sorry state of the world, and I've heard you talk about this a lot. And you think, wow, um, why would anybody have children and bring them into this planet that's blowing up? Women are having rights taken away and so on. I mean, why is is that rational? I mean, my school is very uh, progressive. A lot of my classmates, I mean, some of them are not, but a lot of like most of my classmates are um democratic, progressive people. And we talk about it a lot when we're given the space and the um, comfort to actually have an open conversation or a forum about this. We are more sophisticated than adults think. And I I might have mentioned this, but the, the, the day that Roe v. Wade was overturned, my friend called me in tears right. because she was like, how are we supposed to grow up here? And I was like, I... I don't 
know what to tell you. I mean, I like it's not fair, obviously, because the older generation doesn't have to live as long as we do with their choices and the decisions that they've made. But I also think that the the narrative about people should just stop having kids is also completely wrong, because if you don't have kids, y'all are just going to die out and no one's going <laughs> to no one's going to fix the mistakes. Mm-hmm. No one's going to make it any better. What do you think, Zane? Well, it's something I, I, I've been thinking a lot about and Light has helped me think about it. And you've helped me think about it. I mean, I, to me, one of the reasons I, I decided to write this podcast in the personal reason was to think about exactly this question, you know, as a parent myself now, and as a kid whose parents were involved in this revolutionary work, when I was growing up, I was really interested in the question of, you know, what are people willing to sacrifice for what they believe and what should they be willing to sacrifice for what they believe? And, you know, one of the the things I come to in the podcast is, you know, when you have kids, I think Light's right, you have to kind of prioritize them and and they have to be your first priority. But part of having them be your first priority is trying to fight to make a better world for them to grow up in. And so it is how you balance that, you know, where where you decide to put yourself on the line, your family on the line to make a better future, because you can't just have your kids and say, well, the world is the mess that it is, and good luck. You have to have your kids raise them the best you can and try to make a better planet for them to live in. I mean, I think that's one way to think about it is kind of the action of trying to make a better world. But, you know, one of the things I thought from the moment I had kids was that... um, I wanted to I wanted to live my life in a way that gave them a sense that there's some integrity out there that you can choose a better way to be. And so your parents aren't just taking care of you, they're providing a model of what one should do. And I remember, you know, like I've often told the story of you and me being on a bus, you were just learning to read and said put somebody had scrawled a racist slur Mm. on the bus and you sounded it out and you said, what does it mean in front of 150 people? Mm -hmm. And I remember trying to have a rational conversation with you and then crossing it off. And I thought I would not have crossed that off if you hadn't asked, Mm. you know, I see shitty stuff on the buses all the time. Right. Mm. And so I, I think you want to also live a life of principle for your kids so they can see that. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think one of the things, I mean, Light and her sister are both teenagers, and teenagers have a, you know, highly attuned radar to hypocrisy in adults. And one of the things uh, that they've said to us recently is, you know, at least our grandparents aren't hypocrites, at least they live according to what they say. And so I do think, you know, there is something about, I mean, teenagers want you to protect them, but they also want you to be true to what you say you believe. They don't want uh, adults to say, oh, yeah, I wish the world were better, but like, what can I do? I'm just gonna, you know, continue my privileged life. So I think it is, it is that balance as a parent of setting an example and also taking care of them. You know, I'm not going to remember this perfectly light, but um, Bob Dylan has another lyric in a song called Masters of War. And he condemns the war makers and the war mongers and the producers of war material. But at some point he says the biggest crime you committed was you made us not to want to bring children into the world because you've created such a bleak landscape. Mm. And that's your biggest sin. I Mm. thought that was interesting. Mm -hmm. So um, let's talk more about parenting. Um, What did you, did you think about the question of parenting your own and 
your parents' parenting as you were doing this? Yeah, I did. I mean, the arc of the of the series really over these 10 episodes, it starts, the first two episodes are about, you know, telling the history of you guys as young people, first Bernadine and then you, how you were radicalized, what it was like to be, you know, young in the late 60s and, and you know, coming of age in a time of war and kind of a country divided against itself and a racial reckoning and all these things that were living through again now. So it starts with you as young people. And then over the course of the series tells the story of you growing up, going underground, and then ultimately having me becoming parents, and then surfacing and deciding what to do next, how to build a better future. And then ultimately, my having kids and you being grandparents. And as you said, it kind of ends with you and light talking and thinking about how these things are passed along uh, generation to generation. So yeah, I was thinking a lot about your parenting, my parenting, the journey from me being a kid to being a parent and, and you know, how that changes us. And what's the takeaway from the podcast about any of this parenting, <laughs> politics? Well, you have to listen. You know, I, one of the funny things is uh, when I was, you know, I'm a playwright. And when I was in graduate school, Edward Albee came to talk to us and somebody asked him about his great play, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? And they said, you know, what's the meaning of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? What's it about? What does it mean? And he said, if I could tell you what it means, I would have written it on a napkin and given it to you. You know, you, I wrote a play because that's what it means. It means the play. You have to experience the play to understand what it means. So on one level, I would say, you know, it's 10 episodes. It's almost eight hours long. And, and it, it means a lot of things. And a lot of really smart people spoke to me about it, you guys included. And, and so I don't want to boil down all the different voices in the show to one message. But for me, one of the takeaways was, you know, it was about how we've grown as a family, how we've grown as a country, and what we can learn from looking back at this kind of tumultuous time, the 60s and 70s, and we are living through another tumultuous time. And so the takeaway is the mistakes that were made along the way, and also the inspiration of people who tried to live according to their values and what that looks like in all its messy complexity. You know, my takeaway is that there's something about your position as next generation, um, as somebody who's implicated in it because you're in the family, but not someone who chose it. Um, and, and you're approaching it as, you know, a generation later, but also as an artist and a writer, not as a partisan. That allows you to be curious. And I think you've struck a chord. I mean, I think people, older people kind of are remembering parts of it, but younger people who have either ne never heard of it or who have something sketchy in their own background and it kind of resonates for them. And I don't just mean people underground, but people thinking about their parents in a different way. Yeah, it's been interesting. I mean, I've gotten a ton of letters or, you know, emails and, and notes online and stuff about what it's meant to people. And it's been really interesting that the generational divide of it, like you said, some people who live through those times kind of feel like it brings them back to that time. It makes them reevaluate their own choices, makes them think through who they were and who they are now. Uh, and as you said, for young people, I mean, I, I, of course, I grew up with this history, so it's kind of hard for me to believe, but Tons of people have written to me saying I'd never heard any of this, didn't know about the Weather Underground, didn't know about the Black Liberation Army, vaguely knew about the Black Panther Party, but had no idea who these people were or why they made these choices or what they lived through. And, you know, if people got this history through the sound bites, if all they heard was, you know, Bill Ayers is friends with Barack Obama and he's an unrepentant terrorist, well, that's a pretty pathetically boiled down 
kind of soundbite that that obscures an entire history. So I think I think if people listen to it, whether they know the history or not, they'll get a lot out out of kind of re-experiencing with these people what their lives were about then. You know, one of the exchanges you and I have in the in the podcast is about being honest with your kids. And we talk about kind of honesty as a kind of a, a stance, but also not wanting to overwhelm your kids with the bleakness of, mm-hmm. of what the world, what's on offer out there in the world. Mm-hmm. How do you think about that now? And I'm interested in how Lighty thinks about the question of whether your parents should be honest with you and are they honest with you? Yeah, I'm interested in what Light thinks about that too. I mean, uh, well, I'll give her a chance to think about it, but I, I think my my feeling is, I say in the podcast, you know, um, one of the things that's interesting for me about it is when you're a kid, there's a lot of things you don't understand about your parents, just necessarily. How could you understand it? And then you get a little bit older, and my experience at least has been that you might not ask certain questions, not even because you're you know, not even because you think you're being lied to or because you're scared of the answers, but maybe you think like it'd be embarrassing to bring things up after all this time or that, you know, why ask difficult questions of your parents if you have, you know, pre-forgiven them for what their answers might be. I mean, I, I'm old enough now that I don't, I don't have grudges against my parents, but I, I think it is interesting to go back at this stage in my life and, and think about like, questions that I might not have asked, contradictions that I might not have explored and kind of think through with you guys, like the truth that I understood as a young person and the truth that I understand now. What about you, Light? Well, I mean, I think that when you're young, you see your parents as perfect, which sounds cliched, but it's true. I remember the first time I thought of you guys as even humans was when you took me to see Alison Bechtel's Fun Home on Broadway. And it's not for any meaningful reason. It's actually because I was angry. I was angry because you took me to that play and the father um, is a professor who sleeps with his students. And you both are professors and so (laughs) were Bill and Bernadine at the time. Mm -hmm. And the thought that a professor could sleep with their student was so upsetting to me because I was like, wait, dad and mom are professors, but they're not people. They're just dad and mom. (laughs) And then I was like, wait, but maybe, you know. We don't. But (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I was upset. You guys thought I was upset because I I was, like, my delicate sensibility was offended. But actually, I was upset because it clarified that you guys were people who could also do that kind of thing. And I really didn't like that. Yeah, it is a shock to realize your parents are people and that they have flaws. Yeah, and so listening to the podcast, I was like dad making this podcast must have been like a really amplified version of my parents taking taking me to fun home Mm -hmm. because i was like he probably learned so much that he you know didn't know or didn't want to know or (laughs) i mean it's also like um kathy boudin my adopted grandmother um passed away a few months ago and i was listening i was in new york um, listening to the podcast with my sister um, on our shared little like hotel bed. And then Kathy came on um, talking about experimentation with sex. 
And my sister and I just looked at each other for a second. And then we both started laughing <laughs> because Kathy's death was still kind of fresh for us. We were really upset about it. So listening to the podcast and hearing her come on, like there was so much experimentation with sex. We were like, are you serious? We were like, is that really like if there is a god that must have been like a joke because we were like that is not what we wanted to hear from Kathy right now <laughs> pretty shocking yeah but it also had that same effect right i was like okay i mean i don't like that but it makes sense because Kathy was also you know young and a human and exactly. a person of her own mm -hmm. she's not just who she was to me yeah that's exactly right and that's what i mean about going back when you're a little older and you have your own kids you already, you know, you, it's different. You see your parents in their humanity and you're even, you know, I'm older now than Bill and Bernadine were in the period that I'm describing them. So it's like, they're my parents, but I can also now see them as young people who, you know, who, I don't know, as a, as a middle-aged person, I look back at, at the way people in their twenties behave and I see it a certain way. It's not just my parents, it's like, oh, these kids, they were young. They did these, these wild things. Yeah. So, so you're looking at these 20 year olds making these decisions. You mentioned a minute ago that you've got two adolescent girls, yeah. one, a young adolescent, one, a much older adolescent, mm -hmm. but what are the, how do you help them negotiate adolescence? How do you, and what kind of a parent are you? And then I'm going to ask you, <clears throat> what kind of parent he's been? What, what, do you give them a lot of leadway? Do you give them a lot of um, freedom to make decisions? How, how do you counsel them? I think I do. I mean, one of the things I, I say, I think in, in in the episode of Mother Country Radicals, where I'm talking about you and about um, I'm talking about criticism, self criticism, and some of the kind of excesses of the weather underground and the sort of like cult like behavior that happened. And I talk about how surprising that was for me to get into because as a parent, you were always so open with me and so encouraging of kind of risk-taking and difference and whatever I wanted to pursue was okay. So it's hard for me to kind of get my mind around the idea that there was a time when you had a kind of a doctrinaire idea of like, it has to be this kind of ideology. It's not the kind of parent you were at all. I think for me, you know, as a parent, I try, I mean, I don't know, I'm curious what Light thinks, but I, I think we are, first of all, we're big talkers in our family. We talk about everything. We, we ask them to talk about everything. We're pretty open about everything. I don't think there's anything in our family that's hidden. So there's a lot of transparency. We're also writers, you know, both Rachel and I are writers. We're not activists. So we have, we have politics in our family, obviously, but I would say the defining characteristic of our family and our parenting is kind of talking things through, going over and over things, uh, you know, language lights, one of the most articulate and kind of talkative people you'll find. So if you get her, if you know, if you ask her questions, you get a lot of interesting answers. And so a lot of our parenting is about trying to ask her questions, answer her questions, and then rinse and repeat over and over again. Um, I mean, I, I guess I'm still young enough that I don't like vigorously compare my parents to others. I, you know, their style of parenting is what I've always had and I don't like know how it could be different. But um reflecting on you know, my childhood, I've always felt like we have a pretty democratic society in my family and um 
I, um, just the other day I was having an argument with my dad and I, I said some like childish roast. I like, I, some like deeply disrespectful kind of burn. I don't even know. It was some attitude-y thing. And Bill turned to me and said, when I was little, if I had said that to my dad, I would have gotten thrown out of the house. <laughs> and that, that was kind of a, a surprise to me. I was like, you know what? I should have gotten thrown out of that. Like, there was nothing deeply insulting or cutting about what I said. It was just like, it was just how I would talk to a teenager. Sassy. And then I was thinking to myself, I was like, why do my parents, why do parents in general, why are they supposed to deserve more respect than anyone else from their kids? It just doesn't seem right. Like, I, like... The whole thing about, like, don't talk back to me. My my parents never say things like that. They they never say, like, don't talk back or, like, don't take that tone with me or things like that. But I was just, like, since it's, like, a cliched thing that parents say, I'm just thinking because I'm – I just feel like why do – why should a kid respect their parents more and more unconditionally than anyone else? Like, I was – I said the thing, I don't even remember what I said, but I said the, like, attitude-y thing to my dad because I was angry and because I saw him as a person and not as, like, a high and mighty figure of importance. And I I was thinking about it, I was like, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Does that mean my dad and I are on mutual respect, like, level playing grounds? Or does it mean I'm, like, an insolent, like, insane brat teenager or both, you know? I mean, I, I felt like I was kind of proud of myself. I was like, I mean, you said this thing to your dad, which is probably bad, but, like, it. he also wasn't really mad about it. So, like, that probably means that you're allowed to be mad at him and say these bratty things. And, you know, he sees you as a person, too. A person who can get mad and have an attitude and not as, like, a teenager who owes him something, who owes him respect. You know, it's funny because I, I thought in that argument, you were right in the content, but there was something about your self-righteous attitude that was wrong. Um, I, I felt, I felt kind of bad. I think I was also right, but I felt kind of bad <laughs> because the fight was so, st- I think we were just arguing because, um, I had just like wiped the di- the dinner table and then I went into the kitchen and he snapped at me for not doing any work. And I was so upset about it. I I was like, because because like he he w- he had been taking a shower or something while I was, I okay I think the thing I said was he had been taking a shower while I was wiping the table and then he came back in and I was putting the rag away and he was like why aren't you being helpful and I like whipped around I was like I hope you enjoyed your shower, <laughs> um I think I was right but I definitely think that there was something about my tone that was deeply disrespectful <laughs> and I wouldn't have liked it if anyone had talked to me that way. Um, but, you know, like I said, I also felt a little bit like, okay, well, I was angry and I said that thing, but he didn't get mad at me. So maybe he respects me enough to like, know that I don't owe him respect when I'm angry. Mm. You know, negotiating adolescence is a treacherous, treacherous journey. What do you worry about? What do you worry about? And what do you worry about? In terms of... Well, in terms of, for example, kids get together, they start, you know, kind of encouraging each other onward. Maybe they have a little too much to drink, and then they want to do something stupid, or something like that. 
maybe. I'm just saying that kind of thing. So here you've got these big grown-up bodies, these big, you know, um, mature aspects to your life, but you're also not experienced. And you could get into a lot of trouble, especially with the group. I always worry about that. Well, I mean, I'm not like, I, I know there's a narrative about like, I'm not like other teenagers or I'm not like other girls or guys or anything, but I genuinely don't think that I'm similar to the um, caricature of adolescence. I don't think any of the people I know, the teenagers I know are that simple. I don't think any of us are like going out like drinking and like, you know, I, I can't say I'm not disappointed about it. I, I think I when I was little, I was like, wow, when I'm in eighth grade or when I'm going into freshman year, I'm going to be like going to parties every night and like getting drunk and sneaking out and playing spin the bottle. And honestly, it's a little bit embarrassing how accepting my parents are. <laughs> it's like my mom knows that if she forbids us from doing things, we'll just do them without her knowledge. So she's like, yeah, OK, that's fine. And it's like, it takes the fun out of like doing like not allowed things. Cause I'm like, well, okay. And also I don't get much, um, opportunity. Like the school I go to is, is pretty, uh, like the, the students are pretty, uh, obedient and <laughs> academically, like more engaged academically than socially, I guess. Mm. So. I don't have the experience where I'm, like, having too much to drink and, like, doing something stupid. So I can't really testify for why that's good or bad, because that's not me. You're 14. There's time. Ah. Yeah. But, yeah, I think um, I don't worry too much about the girls in terms of their own decision making. I mean, all teenagers make mistakes and all teenagers do, you know, wild things. But they're both pretty thoughtful, pretty cautious, pretty... uh, that they think things through a lot before they act and and so yeah our our main strategy with them is to hope that they will tell us will talk to us about what they're thinking what they're going through and that they'll make choices that don't hurt them or hurt other people and otherwise we try to give them the freedom to be the people they want to be so when you talk about things like i mean the the good news and the bad news when you're a young teenager you can't be experienced without first being naive. Mm. I mean, you just can't be experienced without getting experience. So mistakes will be made, right? Mm. And um, but so, what advice do you give them in that regard? I mean, you give give them advice all the time. It's hard to boil it down. But I mean, we've told them things like, if something feels bad, it is bad. You know, trust mm. your own instincts. They're both really smart. They both, uh, you know, have a good barometer for what's morally acceptable and what's physically or ethically dangerous. And so we try to tell them, you know, if you're in a situation and it feels weird or something's creepy, that's real. You should take that seriously and you should get out. Or if you're in a situation and you feel guilty or, or bad about the way you're behaving, that's real too. And you should probably take it seriously and, and not do that. One of the things about having teenagers is, you know, you know that there are going to be situations they're in, either that they put themselves in or that they're just put in, where they're going to have to make really hard choices. And I think Light's right that, you know, as a parent, if you try to make those choices for them, try to keep them out of those situations, you'll fail because they'll put themselves there anyway, and then they won't have the the kind of background or information they need to make those choices. So, 
you try just like you teach them to swim so that when you're not there, if they're in a body of water, they'll be okay. You teach them to drive so that when you're not there and they're driving a car, they'll be okay. You also have to teach them, you know, how to navigate difficult social and, and ethical situations so that when you're not there, they'll still be okay. I mean, our other daughter is 17. We still think of her as a kid. We still try to protect her, but you know, she's going to go off to college and then she's going to have to do all these things on her own. So you don't have a ton of time as a parent to kind of instill the lessons you want and then hope that they can manage it on their own. And again, those lessons aren't just things you say, they're how you live. I mean, they see you yeah. and they copy you for a long, long time. That's true. And then they break from you. <laughs> um, you had said, Lady, when we were talking about interviewing your dad, you had said, what are the limits? What did you have in mind? I don't think I said, what are the limits? I said, how close to the bone are you willing for it to get? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, my idea was just to ask... Um, do you ever resent your parents for your upbringing? And do you think that they could have done a better job balancing their beliefs and their responsibility and obligations toward you? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I thought about that a lot when I was working on the show. I, I certainly don't resent them now. I, I think I've, you know, lived long enough to think that they were pretty remarkable people that they did remarkable things and that they were remarkable parents. And when you're a kid, as you know, lady, like the, if, if your parents care about you and they put you first and they raise you honestly and generously, you forgive them for a lot. I, so I don't, I don't resent them at all. I mean, I, I think when I was young, I thought a lot about, wow, you know, my adopted brother is here because his parents went to prison and my parents, did things that could have sent them to prison. And so I, I thought sometimes, you know, they were lucky. And how much credit should I give them for being lucky, as opposed to making choices that would have kept all of us safe. But I also think, you know, now I'm older, and I think like we all have to rely a little bit on luck, and we all make choices that could uh, be dangerous. And Ultimately, I look back and part of the storytelling of, of Mother Country Radicals for me was about trying to understand where they were coming from. And I do think I managed to understand where they were coming from and to feel really, um, you know, really impressed by them and by the courage they showed back then and, and now. Wow. Thank you. Um you know, we, we typically ask folks, and this is the last question, um, because this is called a seminar on freedom, just to reflect for a moment on what freedom means to you, both as an artist, as a citizen, as a parent, as a human being. What is freedom? Yeah, I mean, the first thing that comes to my mind, you know, I'm a writer, and so for me, freedom is a really internal thing a lot of the time. And I mean, that... that there's privilege involved in that, just the privilege, you know, to because that I don't have to think of freedom as, you know, being released from being behind bars or the freedom to eat or to raise your children or anything like that. But I think a lot about, you know, there's an old German folk song about, uh, and I think it was written about people in prison for their writing and thoughts. And, and the idea is like, you can't, imprison thoughts people can think what they want and 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 even if you try to lock people up and try to prevent them from having freedom 
our internal world, our minds and our souls are free. So for me, when I hear freedom, I think about just getting to sit by myself and let my thoughts wander and let my mind do what it does. And that that's a kind of freedom that that feels important to me. Yeah, I think that's right. But you know, I'm, I just throw one other thing at you, which is that you and I went and saw Stanley Nelson's film, mm. um, The Black Panther Party, Vanguard of the Revolution together. Yeah. And I think we were both stunned by a moment where these two guys who had survived a shootout with the LA police at Panther headquarters, these everyone didn't survive, but these two guys did. And one guy was describing the shootout, and he was very visceral. Boom, boom, boom. You know, they were shooting in. Boom, boom, boom. We were shooting out. And he said, we couldn't get out, and they couldn't get in. And for those few hours, I felt like a free Negro. Mm -hmm. Now, that line just killed me, and I think yeah. it killed you at the time, too, yeah. because it reminded me that there's a certain paradox about freedom, which is this guy felt freer when he was up against the wall fighting for freedom than he felt in any existential sense, any sense of you know, sitting still on a couch. This was freedom. Yeah, but actually the two things I think are related because, I mean, the existential freedom, just like that kind of literal freedom, you feel it most in its exercise against, uh, you know, limitation. I mean, you feel free existentially and intellectually when you're able to have thoughts that are transgressive and that are new and that are creative. And that, for me, as an artist, like, I feel most free when I am able to think things and write things and do things that I'm not supposed to think or write. And so, yeah, I think you, you know, freedom is about testing the limits. It's about showing or feeling that you can, you know, be free in spite of the restrictions that people try to place on you. Well, Zaid, I have to thank you for joining Light and me under the tree. Um, it's been a real pleasure having you and remind people the podcast is called Mother Country Radicals. It's available wherever you get podcasts and it's really worth a few hours of, um, of listening time. So thanks so much, Zane. Thank you for talking to me. <laughs> thanks, guys. Nice to be here. Okay, folks, let's dive into the wreckage and swim as hard as we can in the direction of our dreams. Let's try to stay all the way human. Thanks to our friends at the Dazzling Podcast Ergo and to my co-conspirator, Light Eile. Go forward, keep rising, and make your life both a many-colored rainbow and a bolt of lightning. With joy in my heart and freedom on my mind, until next time.